Welcome to Intangibles, a podcast about the traits, behaviors, and qualities that entrepreneurs can cultivate to help them be successful. I'm your host, Steve Berg. I'm a partner at a New York City-based venture capital fund called Political Ventures. Season four is brought to you by Denton's Venture Technology Group at dentonsventurebeyond.com. Operating as a boutique within the world's largest law firm, the Venture Technology Group runs with hard-charging tech entrepreneurs to drive growth through strategic business, finance, and legal advice from Silicon Valley and New York to London, Berlin, Hong Kong, and beyond. Learn more at dentonsventurebeyond.com. Also, please find Intangibles on the web at www.intangiblespodcast.com. At my son's school in Brooklyn, New York, there is a class on critical thinking. It is an international baccalaureate class, which as far as I can tell, means that it is advanced study for high school students. The school values the topic so highly that the headmaster himself teaches the class. Christopher Hitchens, noted atheist, is quoted as saying, the essence of the independent mind lies not in what it thinks, but how it thinks. I agree, and it sounds like our institutions of learning do too. In order to move our society forward, we need citizens that can not only determine what is salient, but use the data to make good decisions. Critical thinking is the underpinning of that. Dr. Larry Weiss is head of school at Brooklyn Friends. This is his 15th and sadly final year of head of school in a downtown Brooklyn location. In 2004, he became the second head of school at St. Anne's in Brooklyn Heights. And in 2010, he was named head of school at Brooklyn Friends, returning to the place where he began his secondary school teaching career back in 1973. Dr. Weiss graduated from Columbia College in 1971, majoring in Oriental Studies. He subsequently earned his Master of Arts, Master of Philosophy, and PhD degrees at Columbia University's Graduate School of Arts and Science and a certificate in Chinese studies from Columbia's East Asian Institute. Dr. Weiss did his dissertation research in Hong Kong on the effects of the Korean War on Chinese political and economic development from 1950 to 1953, and was supported by grants from Social Science Research Council and from the U.S. Department of Health, Education, Welfare, and Fulbright Dissertation Research Program. That's a mouthful. New Yorkers that listen to this podcast will recognize many of the names on the distinguished list of academic institutions that he has helped lead in one form or fashion during his career. A list that includes Friends of World College, Sidwell Friends School in Washington, D.C., Horace Mann School in Riverdale, and, as I mentioned, St. Anne's and multiple stints at Brooklyn Friends. Dr. Weiss and his wife, Wendy Abel Weiss, have been married for 48 years. They have two children and three grandchildren. And one fun fact that I know is that Dr. Weiss runs the U.S. Marine Corps Marathon every year. If I'm successful today, we'll end up with a primer on critical thinking and a synopsis of the class Dr. Weiss teaches without, of course, having to worry about the gum stuck to the bottom of the desks. Hello, Dr. Weiss. Thank you very much for coming on and contributing your knowledge on the topic of critical thinking. It's a pleasure to be here. Anything that you want to add to that very distinguished bio? For example, how many years in a row now have you run the uh, Marine Corps Marathon? Um, I've run it um, 18 times altogether, 
and uh, 13 times in a row. Wow. So, Wow. And uh, there's something that you have to run five times and then you get the automatic invite. Is exactly. that right? Exactly. And uh, those invites are hard to get these days. I'll tell you so, that. Um, and then I will probably get into uh, the fact that I was a conscientious objector in the military during the Vietnam War and was honorably discharged as a conscientious objector. And running with the Marines gives me a great deal of satisfaction because they really run a race very, very well. And uh, it, it's great to be part of that. So, you know, when I ask if anyone wants to add to their bio, no one ever said anything as great as that. That's amazing. All right, I'm gonna dive in. Um, let's talk about how we internalize knowledge, otherwise known as critical thinking. Can you first walk me through the steps? So I just want to point out first that the reference that you gave in the introduction to uh, the relationship between critical uh, thinking and decision-making is crucial to this particular course that I teach and to my own ideas of what critical thinking is about. First of all, the, the International Baccalaureate uh, was developed by uh, British and American educators right after um, the Second World War, and particularly in the 1950s when a lot of the international boarding schools had um, British Commonwealth students and American students, and the Commonwealth students were preparing for the GCE exams uh, that uh, relate to the uh, A-levels of the British educational system, so where there's a, essentially a 13th grade. And 12th and 13th grade sets one up for going to Oxford and Cambridge for three years as an undergraduate rather than the four years. And uh, the Americans were basically looking at advanced placement exams that would get them into the Ivy League schools and the others um, as, um, after a 12-year, 12th grade program. So the IB ended up being developed as a way to incorporate in 11th and 12th grade, essentially 11th, 12th, and 13th grade order uh, coursework. And the theory of knowledge course that I teach, the epistemology course, has within it the roots of the A-levels approach to the end of high school being a time that a student can really get a very deep general education focus that normally doesn't happen in American colleges until freshman and sophomore year. So that then the student is ready to concentrate in a field more as a freshman than as a, a sophomore or junior. And that student has had an opportunity to go deeply into the philosophy of um, decision-making, into a multicultural examination of the areas of knowledge and uh, particularly ways of knowing. It just seems so important to have a framework for all of the, the information that is going to be coming at you at that time. So it seems so nearly obvious that it ought to be taught as a senior, even though it really is, uh, you know, higher end learning, higher end thinking. So that's, I and mean, I think that's, it makes me, it makes there's it, a certain amount of comfort that I get knowing that, that, that uh, high school students are getting this. So, and the one other piece uh, that's really been defining of the International Baccalaureate is that the student writes uh, what's called an extended essay over the course of the second semester of junior year and the first semester of senior year 
that is on a topic of their choice, that is mentored by a teacher of their choice, that goes through drafts under the supervision of the mentor. So it involves rewriting and sharpening. And that extended essay uh, is then um, very often presented or referred to in the student's college application. Right. And is much closer to the kind of paper that students going to have to write three or four of every semester than a lot of the writing that they do, even in the kind of competitive uh, high school curriculum that, that you know, the schools you mentioned I've been familiar with. So that combination of individual mentored work and this sort of broad-reaching approach to ways of knowing and areas of knowledge. Um, and the one thing I'd highlight again is that this course tries to go beyond a Eurocentric or a Western-centric approach both to the ways of knowing and the areas of knowledge. Yeah. So, and we'll get into that. And so, the, and just so for context, I, we talked at the beginning of the year, and you had mentioned that you're teaching it. And I don't think I knew that before, although I know you've been teaching for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And you're like, hey, I've got an extra text. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, bring that on. And like, mm -hmm. and I, I found myself like, like ripping through this text. It's mm -hmm. just so. It's like a, it's it's like a such a centralized document for right. these things that are, you know, we probably would find in 60 or 70 different books otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it right. really is really great. Okay. All right. So the question, back to the question, right. we're talking about um, the steps that we, for internalizing knowledge, mm -hmm. right? The, the steps for critical thinking. Right. Um, if, you, if you give us a, start, start with a little primer. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, we have the rational deductive model for um, identifying a particular subject uh, by trying to find out as much about that subject um, through observation, through research, uh, where we look in a comparative context at how others have uh, looked at that subject. Um, and uh, essentially, developing a hypothesis about how one's going to uh, understand a particular subject uh, and then uh, testing that hypothesis uh, and, and coming up with a conclusion. And that is the heart of any number of um, methods in, in uh, contemporary culture. It's clearly built in to the way that analysis takes place. Um, now even in the machine world, uh, as well as uh, For sure. in, the, in the intellectual world. But what I want to make clear from the beginning is that that reason-based way of looking at the world is one uh, way of knowing, mm. and that there are seven others. Yeah. And that emotion, recognizing that a lot of people understand and make decisions on the basis of emotion, and I think we're going to yeah, get into hopefully, that. hopefully, on the On the basis, and that faith, people do a lot, including yep. killing each other in large numbers. Yes. On the basis of faith. Yes. Um, that um, intuition, for many artists, uh, is far more important to them as a way of knowing something uh, than deductive reasoning. Right. Um, and that imagination, as well as intuition, and being very different and having a more of a visual dimension. So the idea is that the thinking process, and more importantly, the decision-making process, 
you want to try to get a very clear grounding in deductive reasoning. Absolutely. But you want to be able to understand that a lot of the things you're trying to understand are in the world because people are doing much more than deductive yeah, I, reasoning. I, I, I'm going to put you to test on a couple of those other okay. ways of knowing when it, when it comes Good. to it. But, so I, I want to start I, out... I so will say this, that certainly having Donald Trump as the leader gives us examples of non-rational... Yeah, we, we used to, talk, we used to right. talk about things that are being done consciously and um, not consciously. Right. So you're right. There's, and, a, and there's, a, there's a treasure trove yes. of, of examples that we can right. plot. So one of the things you said um, was you're creating a perspective, mm-hmm. right? And the thing about a perspective is it's kind of imbibed already with an already. And what I mean by is that by that is... It includes what we already believe. It includes what we already know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, there's some techniques and tools to bring people to a universal perspective or at least help line their perspective. Because if, if I'm coming in with my already and you're coming in with your already, oftentimes there's not common ground. So can we talk right. a little bit about ways that we you know, communicate effectively with the already still there? Mm-hmm. So... For example, in the areas of knowledge, indigenous knowledge and um, religious knowledge are considered separate areas of knowing. Yeah. And they, the text and the course makes a point of looking at non-Western and Western uh, religions, makes a point of looking at indigenous societies as societies that have existed in essentially the same part of the planet for centuries longer than a lot of the other societies that exist in those areas. So looking at those early on in the course immediately creates a context of saying, okay, we in Brooklyn in uh, 21st century America see the world very much through our own eyes, especially social media kind of reinforces that. But let's look at things that we might well not understand, not have part of our lives, where does religious um, knowledge come from? And for a lot of teenagers, it comes from their parents or even their grandparents. And that immediately sort of engages discussion with them on how do these faith traditions relate to to knowledge and then to morality and to decision-making. And similarly... How can we say that indigenous knowledge, which is so non-21st century, has some kind of relevance? And as it happens at Brooklyn Friends, there's a strong curricular involvement uh, with Native American society in third grade and in in middle school. And we're regularly visited by members of Native American nations from upstate New York and and Canada. And um, that has been a really great place to start where... You have intuition, you have faith, you have imagination. You have persistence of memory as well. And then, so I think I'm getting a picture. The picture is yes, we have our perspective, but as soon as we put up something against that perspective that is also truth, but it is not the same truth, then we have no choice if we're rational but to open up to that other truth. Right. And what this course is saying is you have no choice if you're going to take this course <laughs> sort of to being... <laughs> Nothing like a little brute, brute force. Well, to, being ex- to being exposed <laughs> yeah. to this. Yeah. Um, and even just the exposure to something other than reason yeah. 
as uh, a way of making a decision uh, or a way of analyzing a decision uh, is a big thing. Yeah, and the notion of having to push back against that if you don't find it in the same way right. that someone else. I'm going to I'm going to try and skin this cat a different way Good. before I move on. Let's talk about the things with regard to perspective that would actually impede your communication, that would mm -hmm. st that would close you off from uh, the other truths in the world, that would allow you to make less optimal decisions because you wouldn't possess all the knowledge. Well, on the one hand, this will probably not be the first time that I say that I believe that the way in which social media is concentrated uh, in the adolescent mind yeah. is one that is so self-focused, so focused on the self, where so much of what the self is trying to deal with is critical or hostile commentary from anonymous yep. Um, yep. contributors, yep. makes it even harder for the teenage self to be divorced from um, an immediate internal focus. Well, I think that there's a universality to that. I, I do not think that high school teenagers are immune, frankly. I mean, the, the creation of social media is really the development of echo chambers, mm -hmm. right? Yes. It's a place to find people who already think exactly like you and hear yourself being, you know, viciously or virtuously, however you choose to think, right. reinforced. Yeah, so that's the answer to your question yeah. is that is the hardest thing to break through in a class but in the five years that I've done this class, it has not taken very long for people to see. Mm -hmm. Let's let's move that aside, yeah. and and let's really see how we can look through different kinds of mirrors yeah. of ways of knowing and areas of knowledge um, in a non-judgmental and growth mindset yeah. kind of way. Yeah, I think you can. I think you can also. Um, show weaknesses or inconsistencies or incompleteness in process of validation as well, right? Because you're you're validating a thing. And if you go, well, you know, you're not validating it in all the ways that you could be validating it. Right. And as long as you are still kind of self-aware enough to know that what you're hearing is correct, you can go, aha, yeah. I have not. Especially if you're not being graded and not being tested. Yeah in the sort of unfortunately increasingly universal uh, yeah. high school method yeah. where there's a right answer. Right. Uh, what I'm looking for and what I've found in my students over those years is that I'm much more interested in how they approach decision-making uh, on, quote, right? on the basis of this. That's back to yeah. the Hitchens quote. And no that probably must blow their mind, right? Because there's always been a right answer and you get the mm -hmm. right answer and you get a check. Right. Um, so all of a sudden right. there's not necessarily a right answer and it can still be good. Which I should just say, in terms of relativism, in its scientific role, and uh, science is looked at in this course, both in terms of uh, what's called the natural sciences, and that's more of a British way of looking at it, that includes biology, uh, chemistry, and physics, yeah. and the human sciences, which are all of the social sciences, which are very rarely taught in uh, a high school context yeah. at all. They are more in Britain. Um, but um, what's great is to be able to say, okay, a historian might see something this way, but this is what an anthropologist looks for right. when they're looking at decision-making right. or they're looking at truth. Right. And this is what a sociologist and, you know, the next time you're at the Museum of Natural History, be able to sort of see how, whether it's uh, religious artifacts or art, 
how that all incorporates um, these different ways of knowing. So you did something right there that allows me to take a small uh, detour, a small segue, um, and it's to talk about truth. Yes. Right? And in critical thinking, this is a question, Mm -hmm. um, genuinely, in critical thinking, does truth need to be absolute? I mean, I I think you're saying no. Right. Um, Which, that, that runs... You know, counter sure. to what the broad the gen pop wants to say, right? Sure. There's not the truthiness is no longer any good, and their well, facts are no longer like. Let's talk about that. So I think with adolescence, there's a great opportunity for the adolescent to develop her or his individual truth. I think you're you're selling short adolescence. I think it can be the great opportunity for anybody. For well, you. it is, but I think you know, in developmental terms, if an adolescent is not getting clearer about her or his um, perception of what is true and what is real. I think that's a that's a disadvantage for that person, and I think all too much formal education is based on accepting someone else's truth and internalizing it, rather than saying, "Okay, what is what is my truth," and not saying, "Okay, well, you think it, and therefore it's right," but more being then. What are the roots of your truth? What are the things that you want to know more about? And how do you judge the decisions that you're making on the basis of the truths that you are evolving? And what are some better ways or better outcomes that you're looking for um, from your decisions? And is it better to try to take into account how much of your truth is based on emotion or intuition, and how much of it uh, is based on reason and sensory perception and memory. And how does your truth stack up against the other truths that your fellow students are expressing and the truths that the philosophers and and the uh, uh, psychoanalysts and the uh, historians are um, giving you in, in your courses? By the way, in the world that I envision of that's coming, um, those folks that just kind of blindly memorize facts as truth, they're going to be hugely disadvantaged. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, all right, so you talked about this um, in kind of stepping me back at the intro, but there's there's uh, eight ways of knowing, yes. and I'm going to just list them and let you nod your head instead of causing you to repeat Good. them. Uh, language, mm-hmm. reason, yep. perception, yep. emotion, mm-hmm. faith, Intuition, mm-hmm. imagination, and memory. Yes. These are them. Okay. I want to, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to do all of these right now. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. do like, I'm going to dive in deeper in some and, and kind of right. give a, a cursory on other ones. Yeah. So, all right. Um, I think I want to start with reasoning. Um, let's start by contrasting objective versus subjective reasoning. Right. Right. Uh, it's, it's certainly. I don't know if I'm right or not, but I, I feel like that is a base tool that you have to have in your toolbox to begin critical thinking. Okay, and I would agree with that. So let me just tell you about a, an assignment I just gave to my class sure. last week. And we were looking at the dyad of ethics as an area of knowledge and reason as a way of knowing. So I asked them to do a two or three page paper that first of all identified an ethical decision that they had made in the last week or two. 
and then to subject that ethical decision to the analytical method of reason, which says... Which is subjective. Yeah, well, that their, their judgment about their ethical decision was subjective, but what's objective is looking at it in terms of what was your, what's your hypothesis about how uh, this decision was made? Um, how did you go about testing how did you, it? How can you now test it in terms of whether it um, initially had um, the intent that you wanted it to have and the impact that you wanted it to have? And this is something I think that particularly for adolescents, but everyone gets into a lot of trouble when they make a decision and that decision is criticized or felt as wrong or painful by someone. And the, the you know, classical default is, oh, well, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to, to upset you. Uh, I didn't mean um, to imply collusion with the Russians by saying that Vladimir Putin would have a $50 million um, penthouse in the, um, in the Trump Tower in, in Moscow. Um, my intent was just to improve the relationship between Russia and, and the United States. But what is the impact? What is the conclusion of your rational analysis of your decision, particularly with the emphasis on the impact? So you're taking something subjective, you are subjecting it then to a more objective analysis and doing that exercise, yeah. I think, gets you aware of how important both elements of subjective and objective are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, Kahneman, right? I know you're you're a, a devotee, or, or at least a student of Kahneman. He wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, right? And that talks about one system of our brain, um, uh, which is creatively called system one, right? Um, which uses kind of pattern recognition, intuition to reach conclusions quickly. It's kind of like your, it's like your shorthand, right? And um, so let me just stop you on oh, there okay. because when I teach this course, I, I really try to be as historically developmental as possible. So those kinds of factors are very involved in survival. Sure. Being able to react to danger quickly, sure, sure, being sure, able sure, sure. to take life-saving yep. yep. um, steps. Yep. And so when we start off looking at indigenous cultures, those are survival skills that tend to be incorporated in the ways of knowing around that and trusting yourself um, to be able to, to do those things. But at the same time, in many of the indigenous cultures as well, there's the idea of meditation, of understanding the great spirit, of trying to maintain harmony within the group. So, um, and whether it's the id and the libido, all these other different things, the fast brain is the brain that keeps us alive. Right. And the slow or, brain. Or, or certainly had, uh, yeah. uh, you know, right. uh, and, and still has a purpose, right? Yeah. And, and you've been prescient here because I think you've, you've gotten to the heart of my question before I was fully able to ask it. But let me see. If I can wriggle some details out of you, right? So, all right. So, Kahneman's got the one system which, like you said, it's kind of like what um, Watson does in Sherlock Holmes, right? Like, he just, you know, kind of uses what he's relied on in the past to kind of get there quickly. And then, you know, 
home or then Sherlock Holmes comes in and he uses you know, system two and that's the deduction and that's much more deliberate and thought takes a longer time period. He removes things that, you know, situations and obstacles can't be there. Um, so as you mentioned, I think both systems are useful. Why don't we do it this way? Why don't we do a little more color, um, and explain kind of an optis, an optimal situation where each form of thinking actually makes the most sense, right? Because you're saying, you know, hey, look, we used to survive that way. Mm, probably don't have as many tigers chasing us through the streets of Brooklyn as we used to, um, but certainly still valuable, right? Still a lot of chasing going yeah, on. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and I, I kind of put you on the spot there, but if and you can think fine. of, if you can think of any. Well, I, I would go back to Sherlock Holmes and say, at least the way that. Um, Sherlock Holmes has been shown in some of the more contemporary films and TV series on PBS and things that the intuitive dimension of Holmes is always important in terms of you know all of the analysis that he's got going on creating scenarios by which he can eliminate right right um, but he's always sort of shaping it in terms of narrowing down yeah where the possibilities might be. And so I would say that that's a classic example of the analytical and the rational. Right. At the same time, when you see the clues that he picks up, very often they're uh, involving uh, misstatements of memory yes. that might have seemed accidental yes. Yes. to someone else but he puts together a theory where it was really an intentional memory. Uh, sometimes, lapse, yes, sometimes. You know. so, and these are fallacies, right? These are fallacies. So let's right. talk about the, you're, you're give, again, yeah. you're just like, you're like a step in front of me the entire okay. way here, So, um, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, so there are fallacies in this, in, in reasoning, right? Yeah. I'm going to pick just three because mm -hmm. otherwise we'll be here That's a fine. long, long time, right? right? Um, argument from ignorance mm -hmm. is one of them, right? right? Where literally you just... Or I would also say argument for the sake of argument. Yeah, that happens because, very because you're expected to argue even if you're ignorant. Whereas it's much easier, ultimately, I think, to say, I really don't know enough about yes. this. Um, and we can talk about our impressions, but uh, let's both try to get more into the weeds. Yes, the goodness of, of that hack, though, is if you can make people think it's okay to say, I don't know. Yeah. It's okay to not argue about this. It's okay to give on this point. That is the quick solution to the fallacy. Right. And for an adolescent, I think in particular, to say to a hypothetical someone, you are pressuring me to make a decision, mm -hmm. which might involve inhaling a particular substance or wow. uh, involving an interpersonal um, sexual relationship Not or whatever. friends. Are you or, kidding me? Or, I'm right. poor. Exactly. To be able to say, you know, I don't know enough about you right. yet. Yeah. I don't know enough about me yeah. yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, let's just keep talking or keep relating. Yeah. But I don't feel, I, I am in fact ignorant about who you really are, and to a certain degree, who I really am. So if we're going to have a relationship, let's try to know a little more about each let's other. Let's go through a fact-finding mission. Well, or, and, <laughs> and an emotion-finding. For sure. Um, For sure. Thing. 
Um, all right, next one I'm picking is hasty generalization. Right. Let's, so yeah. explain that a little bit and then maybe a, just a quick example from what you would teach your kids. Sure. I mean, well, you, you really see it a lot um, in, in lower school kids and uh, middle and upper school kids where um, they've heard a fact, they've memorized a fact, they have gotten a check mark on their test, and inevitably that puts it into a higher category of their own understanding and may lead them to make a generalization that no teacher has ever suggested, no book has ever suggested, but it, it just makes logical right. sense that, oh, you know, my dog did this uh, this morning um, and um, I think the reason that the dog did it was that, you know, I used these words or I gave this treat or whatever and so if someone could use these words and give a treat to me, I would learn something faster than, than that. Yes. Or whatever. Certainly and, a hasty generalization. Yeah. All right, I'm going to choose the final one uh, again because I know we would go on and on mm -hmm. and on. Um, uh, black and white thinking. Yeah. Right? Which, unfortunately, again, I think is reinforced by standardized testing uh, and uh -huh. um, by social media. Right. Um, there was a story in the New York Times today, I don't know if you read it, about this school... Um, that got Ivy League admissions from kids from Louisiana where the whole school curriculum was based on the ACT test. Teaching to the ACTs. A, well, not only teaching to it, but just giving it to the kids over and over and over again. Uh -huh. And the kids got into Harvard, the kids got into all of these places. Right. And then it just turned out that if there was a subject that wasn't on the ACT, that was part of their course curriculum, they had no idea right. what it was. They showed up with only a hammer in their toolbox and when they needed it, a screwdriver, yeah, no screwdriver exactly. to be found. And uh, so, you know, that standardized testing piece is, is really difficult. And then on the social media piece, it's not so much whether you get the right answer, it's whether someone likes your answer. Mm. And how many people like my answer? Mm. Mm. How many friends do I have in response to this thing that I said yeah. or this picture that I posted? I and mean, look, the generalization that I have here just so far in the conversation is the value of the class and you know, the ideal to you is how do we build the best human being that we can, right? How do we build the best person? Um, and, you know, that person doesn't have to be you know, an ace in physics. They don't have to be like, but they just have to be a person that can navigate the world and 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 be able to make you know relative sense of it. Right, and and I think to get back to your primary subject of critical thinking, yeah. people who are comfortable with a thinking process yeah. that goes deeper, yeah. takes yeah. more time, and leads to more conscious results. Uh, while also realizing that there are unconscious and, and subconscious uh, things that are shaping them yes. and that they can integrate all of that into a personality that they're comfortable so with. So here's one that, here's a, a kind of a, a subtopic that I really, really wanted to get to because sometimes, you know, people commit those fallacies in ignorance. They just don't realize they're doing it. Right. But sometimes they actually do it on purpose. And I think... That's essentially disinformation, right? And I, and I think we see that... Or fake news. Well, that's where I was going with this. Right. I, think, I think we see that 
um, when we have pundits, right, mm-hmm. who are there to defend a thing and have to carry the water for uh, an ism of yes. some kind, yes. right? Um, how do you teach your kids to deal with it when it's, oh, that person just made an error versus, oh, that person's trying to fool me? Yeah. Um, what, or that person's evil. Right, right. And or, they read, yeah, they're you know, they're genuinely out that, for their own interest and right. they don't really care how... how and that how, person should die or, or you know, <laughs> okay, okay, all right. whatever. <laughs> all right. So, um, or the country that that person comes from should die. Right. Um, and that's, again, at the heart of your critical thinking is, is to help students trust their own ability to think in nuance, to always be curious about other ways of looking at something, to be rewarded when they are coming up with their own analysis that is different than even the mainstream of the class. And when that spidey sense says, "Mm, something's wrong here, Mm -hmm. what are they supposed to do? Say that. Just call it out. Yeah, just say, you know, I mean, the most polite way of saying it in a class is to say, you know, I'm just thinking something that seems to be inconsistent with what we just said. So you labelize it to minimize it. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I, I, not to minimize it so much as more to be specific about it. Right. Like you're doing this. Uh-huh. That is why that counts for less in my mind in terms of my critical thinking process. Yeah. Or, or let's, let's both go deeper into this. To no, see, I don't know, know if I want to chase someone down a rabbit hole when I think they're um, lying to me. Well... With adolescence, if you don't, then yeah. you basically have lost the Understand. game. Understand. Uh, you have to trust them to go with you because they don't, they don't think of it as a rabbit hole. They think of it in many ways as getting out of a trap yeah. that they can then say, well, you don't care what I think anyway, so right. I'm, I'm going to turn off Throw to my you, hands. you know, and, and be passive and you know, make sure that if stuff is going to be on the exam that I pay attention to that. But, no, I think with adolescents and adults, and I think we're doing some of that in this conversation, that even if something is said that you disagree with, if you can go deeper into it to understand what the other person is saying in a non-pejorative kind of way. If you have a genuine interest in doing that, yeah. yeah. All right, let's, let's move on to language. I think language is... Language is such an interesting part of this because language, it can at once sharpen an argument or at the same, in the very same way, weaken an argument. Um, Is language the most important element in critical thinking? I think what's important in, most important in critical thinking is to understand that someone else's language, even if it's the same, you know, outward language, is not going to necessarily be the same as yours. So the question, what do you mean by that, is really important because there is more unity around what meaning means than what a lot of the words that go into a statement or a question. And I think in general, people are respectful of being asked that question and feel in some ways some positive reinforcement when you care enough about what they're saying to say, now, 
I think I know what you mean by that, but can you give me a little more detail yeah. on what you mean by that? Well, in the world right now, there are people who make a lot, a lot of money by picking their words very carefully. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think I, 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 I do think it is important, but I also do think um, being able to recognize that either sharpness or weakness, depending on. So let me just tell you in the in the text, language is there. Um, in one section of it to talk about the difference between oral language and written language and the evolution of written language and the idea that written language has some sort of higher value than uh, spoken language and the idea that one is necessarily more rational or more worthy of being taken seriously Poppycock. can be challenged. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it, oh, I read it off a paper. It must be true. Yes. No. Particularly, or I read it off a screen. Right. And that means right. it's even more true. Right. Um, all right. So there's, there's language fallacies just like there are um, you know, fallacies right. in, in but, other ways. But in a multicultural context also, when you realize that even in their structures, yeah. many languages are different than each other. Yes, yes. Just yes, in terms yes. of, of how a subject is approached and how verbs are conjugated or not conjugated or, yes. um, you know, how things are made more collective rather than more specific. Um, and I think, again, for, for high school kids to sort of see that, especially kids who are studying other languages to some degree, um, prepares them for a world in which yeah. there are so many different voices and you think the person is saying something to you that they might not intend to say yeah. or that has an impact on you that suddenly puts them in a different category, particularly negative and pejorative, right. Right. when that person was using the word not necessarily with that intent. Um, so let's... Let's highlight, if you would, a couple of the language fallacies. Could you give me one or two? Um, actually, maybe you give me an example of one that you would see as particularly significant from your point of view. Mm, I don't have any ones that I would highlight because I like my view of them was almost universally they're the same thing. <laughs> so when, I, when I studied it and I looked at it, I'm like, oh, that's the same thing kind of regurgitated, recombined. And so I was like, I was kind of hoping for, to draw out from you. If not, we can just, we can just pass no, on No, I mean, because it. it's actually, when I talked about the dyad of um, ethics and uh, reason, yeah. the first dyad that this, this year's class started off with was uh, indigenous knowledge and language. And that so much of uh, indigenous knowledge is based on an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. And that as writing develops, initially I think just to count things, um, and as writing also develops, particularly in, in Chinese and other languages, out of visual representation, out of pictures that then become more abstract. Um, the fallacy is essentially, I think, to hear a word, think you know what it means, right. and 
not to try to get some kind of clarification or at least imagination about what else it might have to meant. go to go homes on it to shortcut it right, right to exactly. sit in your head i also think you know we honestly we just did touch one on one which is that that is sense whatever the, the form of media assigns a certain a different kind of value in your head so i think that's one as but well. this this might not fit your category but it really becomes central to a lot of um particularly an adolescent way of looking at theories of knowledge, is this gap between intent and impact. And the intent which is subjectively formulated and the impact which is a lot harder to try to think about before you say something. And and I think, although I I find it very difficult to say anything positive about Trump, I think the fact that so many people are justifiably critical about the impact of his words without necessarily crediting the fact that he he might have had a very different intent, but he has no control and no ability to sort of think about what the impact is before he says it and how much of this was an intentional impact and how much of it was just... Premeditated versus verbal diarrhea. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Okay, um, let's let's move on and discuss perception. Uh, this refers to uh, the information that our senses provide us. Um, a great deal of good critical thinking is, you know, really being aware and avoiding the tricks that our senses are actually playing on us, right? Um, All right, so when humans perceive something to be true, they often take the shortcuts and they'll rely, like we talked about, on past experiences and they create expectation and then they just look for confirmation. They just look for things that that take what they already thought and prove them to be true. Um, The thing is, you know, if we're not really careful about that, we just fool ourselves into perceiving something um, when another thing is in fact true, right? So, and, and that is, in fact, in my mind, that is the opposite of critical reasoning, right? Um, so that's, that's a pitfall. Um, so the question is, what's the reason that humans create these expectations? And, 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 and should they really try to suspend those expectations? So suspending would be one way because I think your analysis is, is right of, of what happens. But if either as part of suspending or in addition to suspending or even instead of suspending, you can say to the person or to others, what did you see? Yeah. Okay, I think I saw this. What did you see? I thought I heard this, uh, and it has this meaning to me, but how do you see it? Not that how you see it is definitely going to be better than how I see it, but the more open you are to getting multiple perspectives on something, especially across cultures and across, you know, other predetermined mutually exclusive variables of age, gender, uh, race, whatever, um... And is there a way that we can hear each other's 
perceptions of the same yeah. thing. I think I think we're talking about disentangling an observation from an interpretation, yeah. right? And the way you do that is by getting other interpretations and right. see if they mesh. Without assuming right. that yours is right. is right just because you saw it that way. Right, right. And, and by the way, that's hard. Yeah. But what you're, I mean, I, I think you just gave the answer. And the answer is the way to do that as a critical thinker is just to not assume automatically that you're right. Yeah, right? and that takes the verb critical or to criticize to yourself to say, wait a minute, did I actually see what I thought I saw? Yes. Yes. Did I actually hear this person say what I thought she said? That's exactly right. and, and that's hard because what are teachers and parents always saying? Listen to me, do what I tell you. Yes. Get this answer and see it my way or you're on the highway. And so I want to ask, so I mean, I've, I've struggled with the concept of intellectual honesty, not what it is broadly, but, yeah. but how intellectual honest I am with myself, mm -hmm. right? Are you, I mean, it's, this sounds like intellectual honesty. Yeah. That if it gets incorporated early enough, becomes more reflexive. Yeah. Um, which is to say, you know, I'm comfortable with saying to someone, I'm hearing you say this. Is right, that right. is that really what you're saying? Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily mind being wrong on this if you can abuse right. me of or, why I'm wrong. Yeah, or it, it's not even whether it's right or wrong. How much more can I understand about this yeah. from getting your point of view of it? Yeah. And, you know, we're both reading the same book. I'm telling you what I think the author is saying, yeah. but I really want to know what you think. And if it's different than what I think, that's even better. Right. And by the way, it could also be the same. It could be two different things and both be true. Yeah. Um, so, right. All right. So again, I know that we could keep talking, but I've got to mm -hmm. keep moving. So okay. I'm, I'm moving on to another way of knowing, and, and that's memory. Right. Um, so I think memory, similar to other ways of knowing, can be a little sketchy as well, right? I mean, you can't always trust your memory. There's right. things, you know, there's memory decay, memory distortion, so there's a ton of biases. You're talking to someone who'll be 70 in July and, uh, you know, the reality of what you're saying is eh, all the more prescient. Eh. Um, there is, time. just for people who don't know, there, you know Malcolm Gladwell or of yeah, Malcolm sure. Bell, right? right? So he's got this podcast now and he literally did a two-part episode on um, the decay of memory. And this one particular guy was going around telling the story and didn't have any really reason to lie. But, you know, when you went back and checked the truth, it wasn't anything like that. And that it was literally just, you know, this kind of his mind playing a trick on him because it, again, made the most sense. Um, all right, so... Let's talk about, I know we keep coming back to these biases, but I feel like if we talk about the reasons that you can get tripped up, I think people broadly understand the concept, but if, if you identify it and stop yourself from getting tripped up, you're tightening your critical reasoning skills. So that's why I'm doing it, by the way. Yeah, all good. right, so, um, all right. So if we go back to our critical thinking process, should we assign less value to memory because it's fallible or do we do something else to try and, bring it up in terms of the quality of the facts that were measured, that were weighing for reason. Okay. So th this is the thing. If, if we're looking at criminal justice, if we're looking at writing history, oh, if I knew we're looking the answer to this. Yeah, I knew you would do it. Then, you know, um, assuming that there actually was a fact, it's, 
is it written down? Is it written down in a, enough similarity by several different people who saw it from different perspectives? Yeah. Um, is there firsthand evidence um, that someone gave um, verbally to someone else, n not being coerced, or um, you know, sort of more objectively? And um, you know, and this is where my own training as a historian or political scientist comes in where it became, you know, absolute gospel that if you were going to do research, you really had to try deliberately to look for alternative sources um, yeah. and then try to figure out a rational explanation of how they might both have been talking about the same thing. So you have to open it up to the external world. Is there any, I know, and that's, that, that makes perfect sense. What happens, is there any, uh, there probably isn't, um, if you if you can't right if it's a memory of if it's a memory of one if you're the only well, person who to I, have I, it I think that you know some of the books on these shelves are memories of one and if it's understood on that basis yeah. and if it's you know the memory of Sigmund Freud or the memory of Albert Einstein uh, or Eric Erickson um, it's just really great to be able to see their mind process. Yeah without necessarily having a dogmatic or religious attachment yeah. to that one particular view. I think you're saying you just got to be careful about that, right? If, you, if, if, if you're at all concerned that the, the, the memory has some fault in it, then you have to weigh it less. Right. Yeah. All right. So look, um, in the, I, I can tell the ones that you like to talk about. In yeah. the interest no, of time, no, I'm going to leave... But hit the ones that you think I might not want to I'm going to I'm going to leave out imagination and yeah. emotion. Okay. Uh, and kind of just to the tangential references Good. we've got. But, but they're I really can, great with adolescence. That's the last thing I'll say. I can it's tell... It's very it, affirming. It's so that clear it's okay. that you have um, kind of strong bodies of knowledge or understanding wisdom to impart on emotion and faith. Yeah. So I'm going to go for emotion and faith. And okay. like, if I, like, you know, Steve, Great. here's four, which two would you take? I'm taking these two. Okay. So I'm going to go with Fine. emotion. Um, and again, you know, if you think memory is a little sketch, this is where the water really starts to get murky, right? right. Um, is there room for emotion and critical thinking? There has to be. Uh, and, you know, I think to some degree the Buddhist and the meditative uh, emphasis that's even in Quakerism would say that meditation can be a process of calming the emotion and trying to open up a less emotional um, enlightenment on something. But none of the... Um, meditation-based faiths, I think, would say um, do away with emotion, try to suppress emotion. Uh, everybody's got to realize, again, that this is what we're hardwired as animals. And one of the things at the beginning of this course is to start off saying we have evolved from animals, we are very much animals, um, animals don't write things down, uh, animals don't um, plant food and, and harvest it. These are all things that we've developed for survival. But animals definitely have emotion, and we do too. So, again, I think when I mentioned Erickson, I think 
more than Freud and sort of more than, than the Freudians in general, Erickson is saying how do different emotions evolve? How, uh, how does an adult um, approach to an emotional issue differ from a child's approach? Yeah. Um, but the idea is that those emotions are just as powerful. I got to tell you, man, this is, this is the hardest one for me because in, in my opinion, not always, but in certain situations, emotion is in fact in opposition to reason. Oh, it absolutely is. And I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm just saying that it's there. I mean, I, I read uh, recently a book uh, that was suggested by Michiko Kakutani in her last book review that was on the front page of the Times about the rise of Hitler, okay? And it, from my point of view, was intended to be prophetic about our current leadership, but basically looked at how Hitler and um, particularly Goebbels were able to understand the power of emotion yeah. and manipulate that emotion yeah. into anger and um, well, ultimately, ultimately action, right? So, so emotion overcame reason often. Right. And, right. That, and that was seen as a good thing, as a Germanic well, thing. As an effective as tool. As a Wagnerian thing. Yeah. And, you know, and horrible consequences arose. So I'm going to make the pro case then. Mm -hmm. Right. Having just said that it's impossible for me in, in instances. All right. So Machiavelli, right? Machiavelli says everything is done out of either love or fear. Uh, in that scenario, it seems like emotion is the only propulsive force, right? The, um, the question is, is emotion like fear? Is that just a tool like we were implying or is it a pitfall or is it Sometimes well, one, I think, sometimes it's, I think it's both, but I think the problem with Machiavelli, and I remember that you know the the Columbia uh, Humanities curriculum, the undergraduate uh, curriculum, did not have us read The Prince. It was another book which my memory is now blocking, is which was much more based on rationality, um, and I'll. I'll might remember Come it later. sometime. If you don't, but, that's fine. But Machiavelli, I think, was in the Prince saying, if I'm writing to someone who is totally uh, devoted to manipulating people yeah. and to taking their money and to killing their enemies, yeah. definitely it's emotion that's going to get them to do those things. Yeah. This is the other um, side of the coin. Remember, we just talked about the notion of somebody, um, y you know, creating a fallacy on mm -hmm. purpose to create disinformation. Right. This is just, this is an equal tool in that same toolbox right. of saying, hey, I can manipulate someone into doing someone. Mm -hmm. All right. So look, the goodness of this, mm -hmm. and you've helped me get there, mm -hmm. is that um, these are just tools in the toolbox, right? They're, well, they're but, not... But again, let, let's get back to critical thinking. Yes, yes. Is that if you can say... I recognize emotion as a way of knowing. I recognize faith as a way of knowing. Um, but for me to really be able to make good decisions, I have to be able to balance my emotional impulse with my more rational impulse, with my intuitive, you know, that, that that's where it's going in terms of balance, which um, I was actually 
when I was reading your original questions, led back to thinking about the role of faith in a central decision of my life, which was being a, a relatively safe uh, member of the military with having had a, law, a very low number in the draft lottery. I joined the medical reserve unit um, and went through basic combat training and combat medic training in 1970-71 in what would have been the first semester of my senior year. And then I decided at a particular point I had made a mistake that uh, if I ended up having to go to jail for my beliefs that it's wrong to kill people, I was ready to do that. But within the system, it turned out that there was a conscientious objector uh, option uh, in the military. And my medic training was at Fort Sam Houston, which is the center in San Antonio of the whole medical corps. And it happened to have a really good library. And in that library, there was a book by Abraham Heschel. And I was brought up as a Jew, and I still believe that I am a Jew. Um, but I had never read Heschel before. And this was a book called Between God and Man, which, you know, Heschel is the guy who was carrying the Torah in Selma across the, the Pettus Bridge with Martin Luther King. He was a very major force in a the Jewish theological seminary. Um, but he's basically saying between God and humans is this space, is this metaphysical space that creates the opportunity for understanding what one can understand and what goes beyond one's understanding mm -hmm. and figuring out words and feelings that might incorporate that. And if the words that have come down in the commandments and the commentaries and all of this are meaning something to you in a particular way, trust that as a real statement of your values, even though it might not be written in a way that says, as Quakerism would be explicit in saying, um, there's that of God in every person. But Heschel is basically saying that's exactly what it is. There is that of God recognize in every person frailty. and recognize your frailty and recognize your own vision. Yeah. And so I, there was something where you said, I, I, I think that maybe faith is, um, is not part of critical thinking. But in this particular case for me, I then had to embark on critical thinking to analyze what it was that led me to sign a six-year contract and to think that being a medic was okay, especially if I didn't have to go to Vietnam. Yeah. And I said, well, if I thought that way, I was really violating my, my deeper So I'm going to uh, test you on faith. faith in just a second, at least a okay. couple of things. But I'm going to finish up on a motion, and I'm, 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 still, on the, I'm still on the pro case. Mm-hmm. Good. And the the other emotion that comes to mind specifically for me is empathy. Good. And so if I, if I think of what empathy means, empathy means the capacity to stand imaginatively in someone else's shoes. I would um, say to think imaginatively in someone's head. But yes, okay. yes, yes. Um, this seems absolutely critical to critical thinking, right? It, it, 
Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, can you learn empathy so that you can do this? See, I so think that you can you, increase your ability to... to I to think if you go over quickly? what we've said in the last hour or so, yeah. in virtually every dimension yeah. that you've mentioned, yeah. there's been how do you connect with the other person yeah. in a way that's not threatening and gives them a chance yeah. to disagree with you or to engage yeah. with you. And that, to me, is, is the heart of empathy. Yeah. And if you can do that in a way that is as possibly devoid as it can be of superiority and inferiority judgments on the basis of age or gender or race or whatever, and say, I want really to understand how you see this. And genuinely. Yes, genuinely. And I will tell you genuinely how we see this. And we will probably disagree but I'm not going to grade you on yours, and I hope you're not going to grade me on mine if this is part of an ongoing dialogue. Um, and um, that is uh, The Discourses is the other Machiavelli book. Yeah. The Discourses is far more based on um, rationality. Um, so he was balanced in his own way, too. Well, he was also, he knew he had different clients, and the prince <laughs> was based on his, Ooh, on his client a as a prince. A tough crowd. And the discourses were based on other philosophers and, and uh, statespeople. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Th yeah. This is the tough one. This is the black box of no ways of knowing. Um, uh, we're going to go with faith now, right? Um, I know we can't do it justice in a couple of minutes, but let's try, right? Um, Let's start with this one that I feel is a little heavier. Um, it feels to me as though people are genetically predisposed to faith being either valid or invalid in their critical thinking, right? There's a group of people that somehow possess the capacity to have faith and they stand in abject opposite to people who are like, no, I just cannot believe. If I can't see it, if I can't feel it, if I can't touch it, I mm -hmm. can't know it. Okay, so... Let's look at how people develop faith. If faith is essentially indoctrinated from adult to child, especially in a situation in which if you challenge, if you even as a child challenge the faith, you are punished or um, exorcised yeah. or, or um, you know, cast out, um, that's true. You know, your analysis is is true. Um, certainty, anything that is questioning, anything that's uncertain, is seen as apostate, as is seen as as uh, heresy. Um, but I think most faith most faith traditions have a recognition that at a certain point whatever one's familiarity or, or uh, punishment or whatever has been as a child, that if you don't own the faith in some way that is personally meaningful to you, it's not going to play a positive part in your life. In, in all the years of teaching the course, have you ever seen a student in the course of the semester mm -hmm. learn to believe? I can't say that I have because I've never really even tried to um, make that kind of value judgment. Yeah. I will say that the most important thing for me in this kind of course and in 
this kind of career is to see students who did not believe in themselves as eighth or ninth graders end up believing more in themselves. And um, that self-belief to some degree has been in, informed by the things that they've learned about other belief systems and maybe more so the one that they inherited. Mm. Um, and, and, then, and then because this is a religious school, not outwardly wearing it on its sleeve, but definitely having it in its name, there have definitely been students that I've seen who you know, had really no idea and no particular interest or even hostility in a lot of the Quaker values. Yeah. Still graduating not 100%. I, I don't know that anyone is 100% for any value system. But seeing that this did play a role in how they were ready to resolve conflicts, it did play a role in how their friendly relationships were able to sustain. I believe I've seen people where there's a microcosm of it, mm -hmm. and you could see it extrapolated into them over time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, yeah, I think it's a tough thing to see. And then, you know, if you look at our generation, and maybe I'm being presumptive because we've got, I think, three different generations here, but the the impact of the non-secular, yeah. not only on our larger worlds, but on our friends and, and, and um, acquaintances. I mean, the older I get, the more surprised I am that people that I went to high school with and we sort of stay in touch a, a pretty good amount um, had en have ended up with religious commitments and faith commitments that are entirely different than one might have expected. Oh well, that—that's. I was. I thought you were going to say that they, they've become as as they've gotten closer to the end, they've become. You know, faith has been a more tangible. Well, thing there's to that, and I maybe uh, I inevitably look at that perspective. Uh, yeah, I'm right. thinking more even about 10, 20, 30 years ago. All right, I'm gonna let you have for that one. Um, okay, so this is the other side of belief, and again, we're kind of like weaponizing a couple of these things, right? And I, and I don't want to, but I want to be aware of that, right? So there's a, uh, a rock and roll album. Uh, YouTube is, the, is a band, um, and they put out an album. And in that album, there's a lyric uh, which specifically says, the worst things in the world are justified by belief. And I assume that they're referring to are things like holy wars, anti-Semitism, uh, bigotry, things that we, we've kind of touched on a little bit here. But... I think before we can do, we can make a pro-faith case, we need to talk about how faith can kind of take us off the rails. Sure. Um, but, but before we do that, could you in any way accept the idea that the best things are also justified by faith? Mm. That your higher values and your you know, compassion and empathy and all of that, that there are faith traditions many of them non-Western, that emphasize empathy and faith. Mm -hmm. Now, those traditions have involved I'm gonna, people I'm, killing each other. I'm just going to answer that question, things. yes. Yeah. I'm just going to say I can, I, I can also see that. Right. I don't know if I necessarily radiate that, but I mm -hmm. certainly can see it and acknowledge it. Yeah, so, so faith becomes one of those things that you can make intuitive and rational and emotional judgments about yeah. um, and you can also 
and this is where I think the fundamental problem is in American society, you can treat in a rational and compassionate way someone whose faith system, as you understand it, is entirely opposed to yes, yours. Yes, yes, and, yes. And, Mutually exclusive. And in the past, put yours in ovens. Um, but is there still some kind of common ground before it gets to that level of dehumanization yeah. where you can honor their faith in some way and particularly with Christianity there, there are so many different positive, humane I mean, and Absolutely. Martin Luther King Absolutely. you know, was so fantastic with that that um, you know, is there some way of bridging the gap yeah. and at the same time I mean, this gets into slightly muddy territory I mean, I have for a variety of reasons, uh, a lot of problems with ultra-Orthodox Judaism and the idea that my version of Judaism has very much at all in common with the ultra-Orthodox tradition. Right. And then I, if I am stereotyped, I'm stereotyped on the basis of stereotypes of the ultra-Orthodox and, and particularly the way they act in Israel is, um, is problematic. But at the same time, I know that it that when I have sat down and talked to um, Hasidim who uh, are ready to have a conversation, yeah. that there is some ground of agreement before we get there, off it on broadly the extreme. Is. I mean, yeah, I think isolationism broadly is something right now everyone's really grappling with. Yeah. So, all right, so let's do the pro case because you're, you're pretty strong on the pro case here. Um, I'm going to say that the pro case is that faith is... Mm, kind of like any other sense that we've got. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just more difficult to put a precise definition to it, right? We see, we hear, we smell. We know exactly what those things are. We believe. We believe. Yeah. It's just harder to say what specifically that is. Yeah. Um, all right, I'm also going to say, making the pro case for faith, that we make predictions, right? We extrapolate things into the future, it's not all, faith is not all that dissimilar right. to predictions and extrapolating things into the future. And, and, you would, and one would argue broadly that those things, you know, extrapolating, that those things are in fact part of critical thinking. Right. And, and you know, religion has the ace, um, the trump card with a small t, which is when you say, well, you said this was going to happen and it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Religion is always to say, you know, wait, it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, yeah. I have faith that it's going to happen. Right. And, you know, it's it's hard rationally to um, defeat that except to say definitively it hasn't happened yet. So, And by the way, sometimes faith happens. can create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, Just believing that, you, believing that you can is what, right, what right. kind of wills it into existence. Yeah. All right. Final series of questions. Okay. We've got all our ways of knowing, well, except for two, which we yeah. But this is a series of questions that try and puts all the elements together. Good. Um, so, all right. I know all my ways of knowing. Um, I know my pitfalls. I know my biases, or mm -hmm. at least some of them. We've talked about them. All right. Now, I'm about to engage in a critical thinking process. Right. What do I actually do? Okay. So, first... You're going to come up with some kind of working hypothesis. You're going to come up with some areas of research in terms of where you're going to find out. But you've continually got in the back of your mind 
are there inherent biases in my hypothesis? Right. Have other people made different kinds of hypotheses on the same subject? So before I start looking at evidence and conflicting evidence, should I at least pay some attention to alternative hypotheses yeah. that have been put forward? Yeah. Okay. System two. Right. And then, you know, if, um, if I'm going to look at different sources, have I gone out of my way to see where other analysts have made it clear that there are three or four different major schools of right. looking at this, right. some of which are so obnoxious that it, it might be hard even to give them some credit. You, in order to say that you've yes, been I thorough and thoughtful. Yes, I want to be able to, yeah. to s try to understand them yeah. or at least see where their data came from yeah. and whether it was inherently false or true but not necessarily accurately in, um, interpreted. And then uh, when I bring together my research and I'm looking for a central theme for my analysis that derives from my hypothesis, am I as careful as I can be, particularly on the deductive side? And, and also waiting. Right. On to to um, make an argument that doesn't get lost in all the exceptions and that doesn't get lost uh, in the inherent need to, if not prove, right. present a strong uh, case for Right, XYZ. create, a, create a, a reasonably valid conclusion. Right. Got it. And it then is that conclusion as clearly related to my hypothesis as it can be? Is it as concisely and clearly stated um, and in some ways you know I think I, I'm a real believer uh, in good writing as rewriting when I take you know that first draft mm -hmm. can I make my conclusion into my introductory paragraph right 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 yeah there's a great there's a great American Express commercial right now with Juan, Juan, Mel, Juan Manuel Miranda uh, Oh, Lynn, sorry, Lynn Wynn Miranda, um, where he's like, don't believe your first draft. Yes. Don't believe your 10th draft, right? Like, he, you know, don't be satisfied with that. Keep refining and keep, you know, getting to the essence of what it is. So my daughter was one year behind him at Wesleyan and it was in some of his plays that he wrote as an undergraduate. And, you know, we just did In the Heights. Yes. And it, there's such brilliance there. Yes. And, yes, it, that was so clearly a polished product that then Hamilton, I think, is one of the most ultimately yes. polished. Um, so I'm giving you the well done on defining the critical thinking process for us. And now I'm going to ask a slightly harder, and we're literally the second to last question here. Uh, like, So, all right, I've done this. I've done my critical thinking. Right. How do I know that I've made a better decision? What do I do to go, yep, critical thinking works for me? Okay. I think fundamentally, what are the results of the decision? What is the impact of the decision? And you might say, gee, I thought I did a really good job, yeah. but no one understood what I was trying to do. Yeah. And in fact, they misunderstood what I was trying to do. Can you measure this thing? As the chief executive of an academic institution that emphasizes critical thinking, I am continually besieged by the idea <laughs> and, the, and the protest that all of my, you know, uh, that basically no good deed went unpunished. Right. Um, right. But if you give up and then walk away and say, you know, what, what, we must continue like to just, strive yeah, to measure. Yeah, you just, you just try to 
keep understanding what you might have misunderstood and questioning some of your assumptions, but say, look, I still believe that the right thing to do is to encourage this and let's just take the criticism that's come in as part of what has to be taken sure. into account sure, sure, in sure. the next effort. What, what decision isn't criticized at some point? In, you know. All right, so final question. All right, uh, you know, you know what I do, right? I invest in people and companies, right? right? And so I'm always looking for the people that have this ability to think critically, to be self-critical, to be you know, intellectually honest. You've now seen generations of these kids. How do you spot them? How do you how do you like go? Oh man, the critical thinking skills are off the chart. Mm -hmm. um, in an educational setting. You can see it in their writing. You can see it in sort of laboratory um, conflict situations, a lot of which are athletic competitions or other kind of competitions. How do people deal with criticism? How do people deal with stress? Looking at the arts, particularly looking at theater, um, how do people deal with taking on someone else's character. Right, putting themselves in someone else's you know, mind. Exactly, <laughs> and, and how does the artist, the graphic artist, um, how are they taking what's in their heart and mind and putting it on a, a piece of, you know, putting it non-verbally. Um, and I guess to some degree, ultimately you come up with a judgment of how is this person balanced on the one hand yeah. and moving forward on their own terms uh, in a way that is also consistent with how they will benefit from moving forward in the larger world? Um, and that comes from, you know, how do you do it? A lot of observation yeah. and a lot of interaction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about companies, you know, um, it would seem to me one of the questions is how much do you know about your competitors and tell me something good yeah. about each one of your competitors. Yeah, I, I try um, to, I mean, I think that's for sure, that's part of our diligence process. Yeah. Um, I try to I try to get it from a conversation. Mm -hmm, yeah. right? I try to talk about something that has completely unrelated And I think that makes and, a whole lot of sense. Like, how yeah. do they think? How did yeah. they get there? What did they think about? Right. All right. Final, final question. Okay. You thought that was the final question. No, There's no. One, I, one more. I never know. It's, it's e it is an easy one. Um, anything that I left out that uh, is a glaring omission that you're like, oh, man, how could you have talked about critical thinking and not talked about this? No, no. I really, uh, I think they've been great questions. It was great to sort of have a sense before of, of where this was going to go. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested in the view of the omniscient observer. Um, do you... Did you think there were things that were missed, or? It's pretty, pretty darn thorough. We're in, in fact, for those who don't know, we're referring um, to the person who's doing the recording for us so kindly and has uh, either the the benefit or the unfortunate position of having to listen to every conversation that uh, that I have. Okay, Dr. Weiss, um, let us let us end. I you know I want to thank you very much for your time for your insight. 
I believe it's a very, very important topic. And I've been searching for a long time to find somebody who, you know, kind of really has their 10,000 hours on this. And um, I think not just for your class as they enter college, but for everyone navigating the world, the complex world, this is important. And I think you've done a part in helping them. So I want to thank you very much. Well, that's great. And I've really enjoyed, you know, the interplay and your and your questions and your responses. And I, I would sort of like to end uh, with just recognizing that essentially we've been talking about, in this particular case, a curriculum that's evolved over the last 50 years um, out of a intentional effort to incorporate some of the American assumption, educational assumptions, but in a multicultural context, initially European and now beyond. And, um, you know, I came to the school with a mandate to deal with an international baccalaureate program that had been imposed by my predecessor on a faculty that was essentially impervious to having anything imposed on them, but particularly something Change. different and demanding and whatever. Um, but I just have to give uh, him credit and the developers of this uh, curriculum credit for now having, you know, something like five or 6,000 schools around the world that have this curriculum as a part of... Uh, of their overall programs in 60 different countries. And doing uh, something to pr literally prepare kids, right, yeah. for, for this. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for uh, letting me sort of rediscover the, the value of that. Great. Thank you. Thanks. This has been Intangibles. As always, I'd like to thank Denton's Venture Technology Group at dentonsventurebeyond.com for being the sponsor this season and a supportive partner. Operating as a boutique within the world's largest law firm, the Venture Technology Group runs with hard-charging tech entrepreneurs to drive growth through strategic business, finance, and legal advice from Silicon Valley and New York to London, Berlin, Hong Kong, and beyond. Learn more at dentonsventurebeyond.com. And thank you. Keep an eye out for the next episode. I'm your host, Steve Berg.